Let's read again from God's Word in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. We are continuing tonight with our our study of Christ in the Old Testament and beginning a short study um, of the tabernacle this evening. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Let's read again from God's Word, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 10. Again, a passage that picks up on our theme of the tabernacle and Christ in the Old Testament. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, a tabernacle was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Amen. Well, um, as we've just heard, we're going to make a start uh, tonight uh, on trying to introduce this subject from the Old Testament uh, about uh, the tabernacle, which fits very much into our general series on on Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, This actually is an astonishingly rich uh, source of teaching about the person and work uh, of Christ that we're going to be looking at. It's uh, something that's been 
probably neglected in a, major, uh, you know, in a vast uh, majority of churches. Uh, you probably won't hear this spoken about very much in some churches at all. Part of the reason was at one time it was maybe done to death and uh, fell into a, a bit of uh, disrepute uh, because of people just being a wee bit too imaginative and creative uh, as far as their interpretations uh, were concerned. Uh, but what, for whatever reason, I think it's time for us to try and mine this treasure um, and to, to really see how astonishingly it's full of rich allusions and connections and references to our New Testament that open our eyes uh, to the greatness and the glory uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember we started the series off by talking about the road to Emmaus and how Christ opened the Old Testament scriptures. I think it must have taken a good two or three miles to get through all the stuff that's in the tabernacle about the things concerning himself. Um, if I can put it like this, when God comes to describe the creation of the universe... He devotes two chapters to it in the book of Genesis. When he comes to speak about the tabernacle, there are about 50 chapters given over to the structure as well as the functioning of it. So it must be significant. You know, it must be important uh, for us to learn about. So we've had a couple of the New Testament passages read to us. What we're going to do now is we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 25 and read the introductory part uh, regarding it there. So Exodus 25 uh, and at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So probably that verse there, uh, verse number 8, is the key one just for us to focus on. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, a couple of basic points. We're just introducing the, the subject tonight. The most basic and fundamental point about this, this structure that we'll say a little bit more about and we'll have some images up there that will uh, just help us see things a little bit clearer. Point number one is this, that this was to be the dwelling place of God. A tabernacle where, where God would dwell. That's really the meaning um, of the word. In Exodus chapter 25, God is actually speaking to Moses from the top of Mount Sinai. If you just flick back, you know, you'll see that. They've been redeemed from, from Egypt. They've been rescued from the bondage of that place. And uh, Moses has now gone up into the mount. He's been um, delivered the, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And as part of all of what takes place 
during the 40 days that he's there, then this instruction is given to him. And God's desire, what he wants more than anything else, is that he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to live with his people, to be at the center of their lives, to be part of who they are, not to be some aloof, isolated, withdrawn deity, but to be part of where they are. When they travel, you know, whatever they do, that he will guide them and be with them and sustain them and nourish them and bless them. God with them. God wants to dwell among his people. And for 40 years, they're going to travel through this wilderness before they get to the, the promised land. And they'll, 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 they'll travel to a variety of places in that wasteland. And each morning, you know, they'll dismantle their tent. They'll wrap their tent up. They'll pack it away. They'll put it on their back or on their animal's back. And they'll trek through the desert until nightfall. And then the tent is taken down and it's erected and it's put up. And it goes on like that day after day for 40 years. The people living as nomads in their tents before they get to the promised land. What God is saying is this, I want to have a tent. And my tent is going to be pitched beside your tents. And when you travel, I will travel. And when you stop, I will stop. And I will be among you. If you put the next slide up, actually. And what you can see is this. Instructions are given about how the camp in general was to be configured. And right in the very center of it, and of course this is symbolic, not out at the periphery, not at the edge, but right in the center of the camp of the nation is God's tent. And all the different tribes have their allotted place. They're told where they are to camp at various points. But right in the center is God's tent. He wants a sanctuary, a sacred place built, a tent where he can reside with his people. And this is the most fundamental of all the points that we can make from this particular subject. And it's fundamental to the entire story of the Bible. Now, if you, for instance, were to flick a bit further on to Exodus chapter 33, you would find there that Moses has come down out of the mountain now, and uh, things are in chaos. The people have just gone wild. They're worshipping the golden calf. And God says that, uh, I, I think I'm just going to start again, you know, with you, Moses, and uh, we'll get rid of the, this sinful people. And what, what Moses says to him is this, you know, if you don't go with us, then don't carry us away from here. You know, what's the point of us going to the promised land if you're not with us? And that is the, the key point. What, what is life if even if we talk about all the kind of structures and the mechanics of, of, of religion and of Christian life, what does that matter if it's emptied of the reality of the presence of God? I don't even want to go to the promised land if you're not with us. 
And that's the very essence of what God has always intended and planned, right from the Garden of Eden, when he would come and he would walk with Adam in the cool of the day and would have fellowship with him until that fellowship was broken. That's what we find is that the very essence of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. Key verse, you might want to jot this one down, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and what? And tabernacled. That's the word. And tabernacled. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. God's desire was to be with his people in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the case for us tonight as well, in the age of the church, where we're being built up, as First Peter puts it, as living stones into God's temple, where he dwells. God lives in the hearts of his people. The Lord Jesus said that, you know, we will come and we will live with you. I remember just hearing about the camp. I was telling Russell this story the other week that uh, this girl at camp one day and she came to know the Lord. She gave her heart to the Lord and she was told that that meant that the Lord lived in her heart now. you know. And she was coming down to breakfast the next morning and uh, she said to one of the girls that she was with, I just, just feel a wee bit funny this morning. Uh, I think it's Jesus just getting settled in, you know. Um, Maybe it was indigestion, but that's what she thought it was. And it is the reality of the thing that that he lives in our lives and in our hearts every step of the way and will never leave us and forsake us. And when you really think about what heaven is like that we've just been singing about, you know, fundamentally, this, this concept is taken up in, in Revelation chapter 20 when the, the new Jerusalem is pictured. The point that's made is this, that the tabernacle of God will be with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And that's the way that heaven is actually defined as God eternally dwelling with his with his people. So this is a tremendous point that uh, is really being symbolized for us, uh, for us here. That's the general point, but there are a lot of uh, details clearly uh, to, to this tabernacle. I mean, if you, if you look down at where we had a reading there in Exodus chapter 25, um, you know, it goes on to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. You turn your page over, You've got the table for bread, the golden lampstand, and on and on it goes, talking about different pieces of, of this, uh, this tabernacle structure. And then if you go to chapter 37, what you find there is that it's repeated all over again. It's, it's said more than once, this is the design phase. When you get to chapter 37, it's the construction phase. And this man, Bezalel, and he's... A companion, Ohaliah, but the, the men that God fills with his spirit and gives them the skills to actually construct and to teach others to be involved in actually constructing this. And it's mentioned all over again. And there's a, a mass of information that is carefully told to us. And, and this is where the book of Hebrews comes to help us. What is the meaning of this? What does it actually 
signify above and beyond the fact that it is the dwelling uh, place of God. So um, if we go to the next one, this is the general structure. If you were looking down on it, just the, uh, the entrance uh, on, my, on your right there, and then you, you meet the altar of burnt offering, the bronze laver, and then you enter the main structure of the tent, which is in two compartments. First of all, the holy place with three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense. Then there is the veil that separates that from the, uh, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant uh, is. So that's, that's just the general structure. So what is all of this about? What is the significance of this above and beyond the fact of it being the dwelling place of God? Well, let's turn to... Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 again and chapter 9, just, just to make a couple of points uh, about this. Uh, only two points. And, and the first point is this. This structure, uh, in the words of uh, chapter 8 and verse 5, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly thing. Now, you'll see that that idea is also picked up in chapter 9, uh, where it says down at verse 23, the copies of the heavenly things, and then verse number 24, copies of the true things. So all these details, these different components, uh, whether it's the gate, whether it's the uh, lever, the altar, all the things I just mentioned, every one of these things are physical symbols of, of spiritual realities. Look at chapter 9, verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. They're symbolic of certain things. Now, um, there are different words actually that are used just to give slightly different insight into this. So, for instance, in chapter 9, verse 9, where we've just read, uh, read from, the word there for symbolic in Greek is the word parable. It's, it's like a parable. In the same way as Jesus would teach his parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, and he would, he would tell an earthly story which everybody was able to understand and it would have a heavenly meaning. That's what this is. It's a parable. It's a structure, but it has got spiritual and heavenly significance. If you look at the, the one I mentioned in chapter 9 and verse 24, the word copy there, the Greek word there is slightly different, and it's the word antitype. And really what that means, it takes you back to the old days where they, they used to have printing presses, and they used to have put these blocks with the letters in them, and then it went onto the paper. That was the anti-type, and then you had the type on the paper. And he's giving us a bit of an idea about what's going on. But the one I want to spend a little bit more time on is the word that's used in chapter 8 and verse 5, where it says that this serves as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. This this is a shadow. Now, with a shadow, 
you get a bit of an idea, you get a silhouette, uh, you get an outline, you get an idea, but you don't, you don't get clarity. You don't get color, you don't get smell, you don't get noise, but it does give you a bit of an idea about, about what's going on. Now, I've just been talking to you about how the tabernacle has got enormous complexity. There's tremendous richness here. And uh, once we go into these things point by point, it will actually kind of blow your mind, some of it. The insights and the details that it gives you into the person and the work of Christ that you might not really have appreciated before and how it connects up with our New Testament. But for all of that, for all of this detail and for all of this information, 50 chapters worth, you know, if you take into account the book of Leviticus as well, you know, it is just a shadow. And the reality of itself, to quote the New Testament, can be summed up as the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is only a shadow that points to the fullness and the reality of Christ and all his greatness and in all of his glory. Now that's why it's actually so disappointing at times that many Christians hold on to religious rituals. And if you think about the majority of religious rituals today, they're actually things that have been carried over from, from, from the tabernacle. You know, and you will have priests who dress in a particular way. You will have incense sometimes. You'll have buildings that some parts of it are roped off. It seems as though there's a sanctuary area, a place that's more special. There's even altars in some, in some places of worship. And, uh, and basically that's just holding on to the shadows rather than grasping the reality. And of course that's the whole reason that the, the book of Hebrews was written in the first place, that people would go on to greater things in Christ. Even uh, in Ethiopia, Robert was telling me this after his recent visit, that they, uh, they claim that they still have the Ark of the Covenant there. Indiana Jones doesn't have it. It's in Ethiopia instead. And uh, many of the churches in the Orthodox tradition claim to have their own copy, more than one, of the Ark of the Covenant but look at how uh, the book of Hebrews puts it. If you go to chapter 13 and verse 10, this is just one example. He talks about the altar. All right? And this is what he says there. But we have an altar. And of course he's talking spiritually here. He's talking of spiritual reality. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the tabernacle, have no right to eat. And he's developing, and this is what we'll find in subsequent nights, God willing, the meaning and the symbolism of the altar is found in Christ and in his death upon the cross at, at Calvary. So it's a copy and it's a shadow of spiritual realities. But, but what actually is it illustrating? This is my, my, my next point. What actually is this illustrating? Well, it actually, I think, illustrates three things. There's possibly a fourth, but I'm not going to mention that one tonight. The first thing that this all illustrates is um, it illustrates 
the way to God, the approach, the journey to God. Now, that, that, that of course, is the greatest thing that anyone can ever experience, is, is meeting God. And this is an object lesson that helps us to understand how we can how we can meet God. I mean, paradoxically, you know, I said this is all about God wanting to be with his people. But in fact, what this actually teaches us is that God is at a distance from us and we are cut off from him. The holy place, the most holy place is veiled. You know, not anybody could go there. It was only one man, the high priest, and he could only do it once a year and he could only do it in special circumstances. And nobody else could go there. It was not opened up to them. But we learn something about how we can approach God. So very briefly, you know, there, there is an entrance. If you go back to the first uh, slide, actually, yeah. You don't get the idea really here, but all the way around the partition is white, apart from the gate, which is colorful, you know, and it's got um, cherubim and... Uh, uh, sewn into it, and uh, lo- lovely, lovely color. It stands out, you know, in the face of the desert. This is the door. This is the way to come in, and there is only one way into this place. Of Christ presents Himself as the door, the only door to God. You come, and the first thing you meet after you enter in is an altar where animal sacrifice takes place, and you have to understand that before you can you can reach God. A sacrifice has to be made and you have to be cleansed by blood. And to be fair, you know, the symbolism when you come to the book of Leviticus just explodes at this point. In the first few chapters of Leviticus, you read of at least five different kinds of animal sacrifices that can be offered here, all of which have their own different insight and symbolism into a a different angle of the death of Christ. It's phenomenal. You then go to this laver, which talks about cleansing again. If we go to the third one, yeah, this is a bit fuzzy, but when you get into the, the holy place, you have a lamp stand, you have the table of showbread, you have the altar of incense, until finally you enter through into the, the very presence of God. All of these things represent something about our access to God and, and the, the stepping stones of the way of salvation so that eventually... I can meet with God. And maybe we should make the point tonight, if there's someone who has never entered through Christ, the door, you know, what better opportunity than now? Christ is also described as the light of the world. He describes himself as the bread of God. All these things are there in our New Testament, all prefigured in this structure. That's the first thing that's symbolized. The second thing that is symbolized, and I've just touched on it, it is Christ himself. We're going to see Christ himself illustrated. And that is where the book of Hebrews is so important to us. And uh, all these points about cleansing, about sacrifice, about the light of the world, about the bread of God, all of that is seen 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final thing that is symbolized is heaven. Now, you probably picked that up from uh, some of our readings. So let me just remind you, this is a particularly interesting part of the symbolism. If you look at um, chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 2, where it says that, um, we'll read from verse 1, actually. The point is, what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 5, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, it's very interesting that if you were to read uh, some uh, of the book of Revelation, part of the tabernacle is quoted there. So, for instance, if you looked at chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 11, verse 19, as well as the one in chapter 20 that I quoted earlier on, you will see that the tabernacle is mentioned there. You see, when, when these people went into the tabernacle, you know, there was, there was so much gold and there was so much silver. And as I was saying earlier, the cherubim, these angelic beings were, were woven into the fabric and the tapestry of some of the veils and curtains. And although they were on this desert, the idea that was given to them was of, of richness and of treasure and, you know, and of something that was glorious. And, and that was not without significance. And, and there is an insight into what heaven will actually be like and, and how Christ, for instance, as our priest, functions in heaven on our behalf. But there is one that, I just as we close, uh, I want to leave with you. Uh, because, uh, you know, it really did my soul good uh, as I was thinking about it. It's in chapter 6 of Hebrews, and it's at verse um, number 18 and 19. Uh, let me just read that to you. Uh, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there are actually two symbolic references in these verses to the tabernacle. The one is this idea of, in verse 18, having fled for refuge to Christ. Now, you'll read many instances in the Old Testament of people in trouble who fled for refuge to a place of sanctuary for safety. And what they used to do is they, they used to, to, to go to the, the altar, the bronze altar, just inside the gate, and they would, they would hold on to the horns of the altar for safety and refuge. Nobody could harm them when they were doing that. And he, and he picks up on that idea. And, 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 and that's what he says, in a sense, we do in coming to Christ for salvation. We, we fly for refuge and we hold on to Christ the altar signifying all, all that Christ achieved upon the cross at Calvary. And we're holding on to that. 
I can be safe here, resting in Christ. So that's the first point. But the second point from the tabernacle that he's taking out and applying to us here is this idea of the anchor for the soul. Now, of course, you think, where, where, where does that come in in the tabernacle? Well, the anchor doesn't. You know what that means. You know, in Aberdeen, you know, again, the storm's uh, out and the, the boat's been tossed around and it's wild as you like. And what the skipper has got to do is he's got to get that anchor down in the storm and uh, he's praying that that anchor doesn't, doesn't get attached to some seaweed or driftwood or just an old wreck. He wants it to get right down onto a rock where it will, it will fasten onto and he will, he will be secure and he will be safe. So he takes that and what he says is this, that the, the anchor for our soul is somewhere else. It's not at the bottom of the sea. The anchor for our soul is this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Okay? You've got the imagery. The anchor has gone in behind the curtain. And what is in that inner place? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the very throne of God. The very presence of God, which is heaven itself, where Christ has now entered. And that is where our hope is anchored. It's anchored right in the presence of God. And it will never shift. And it will never move anchored in Christ in heaven. It's a tremendous thought for us to just fo- focus on, to give us encouragement and to give us hope. Here's another one, actually, just, just to, as a by the by. Verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, you know what a forerunner is? John the Baptist was a forerunner, the forerunner of Christ. The forerunner is the man who, before the main event comes, announces him, prepares the way, makes sure everything is ready. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. The Messiah is coming. Now, isn't this remarkable? It's talking about the Lord Jesus, you know, our, our, our great Savior. But, but he's, he's only described here as the forerunner. The main event is still to come. It's almost what it's saying. He has entered into heaven. Who's he preparing the way? If I go, John 14, I will prepare a house for you. That where I am, there you will be also. I mean, it, it's almost unbelievable to say it. We are the main event as far as heaven is concerned. And he is the forerunner for us. So these are some of the the tremendous symbolic things that this object lesson, the tabernacle, uh, portrays for us regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite illustrations, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, is about Victorian London. People attended churches, and there were three particular churches that were very popular, and three preachers who were very popular at this particular time in Victorian London. 
They said that you could sum up these three places by three different statements. The first one, when you went there and you listened to the man speaking, they said, when you came out at the end of it, what you would say is this, what a message. The second one, when you went and heard him, you would say, what a preacher. And the third one, which is where Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, was different. When you went there, people came out. They didn't say, what a message. They didn't say, what a preacher. They tended to say, what a saviour. And I think that's what we get when we come to the study of the tabernacle. What a saviour that is depicted and pictured for us in this ancient structure that God gave the design of to Moses. That's just the introduction. That's hopefully just to whet your appetite and not put you off it, you know. And I hope that once we get into it in a little bit more detail, you'll see just the riches of what is involved here. Now, shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the richness of your word and how we look into these passages that at one level might seem so obscure and difficult to us. And yet we're, we're caused to see all the connections and references to the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he pictures so much for us. Thank you for his precious blood that was shed upon the cross at Calvary that cleanses us from the guilt of our sin and that can cleanse even our consciences, uh, that we can be presented before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. And we pray that as we have thought about the Lord Jesus and his great salvation, that it will have warmed and touched our hearts with appreciation and worship for him. And so, Lord, we commit us all to you tonight. Help us to have eyes for our Lord Jesus Christ and worship him with a true heart as we ask in his name. Amen.